0: Hey everyone, welcome to The Breakthrough Breakdown. In this podcast, we'll be breaking down the sermon from the previous week, diving into theological discussions and even having some fun. Make sure to join us every Wednesday on Spotify, Apple Music, and download our Zion Lutheran Church app for more updates. And with that, we hope you enjoy The Breakthrough Breakdown.
1: Well, hey, welcome to The Breakthrough Breakdown. This is Pastor Jason, one of the pastors here at Zion. (laughs) Uh. We're here. We're continuing our God is series. I'm here with
2: Kate Hopple,
1: Derek Crawford,
2: and Casey Schlickte.
1: And we're going to actually be talking about, we're coming to the end of our God is series. Uh, we've got three weeks left where we're actually going to be taking part of the Lord's Prayer that isn't even found in Matthew uh, 6. It's not <laughs> even found as part of the Lord's Prayer. And it's at the very end when we've added on, church history is added on, for yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And so each week we're going to be looking at these. Now, uh, one of the things we want to make sure that people understand, we pre-record this before, but we talk as if the sermon has already happened. It's just so that people don't get confused (laughs) when they're listening, wondering which we're talking about. Except for us. Except for us. We get confused all the time. Uh, And so often when we do this, many times we've had the sermon read through, which if those who are listening don't know this, uh, one of the practices that we've added to our staff is that who's ever preaching, it's an opportunity to share the message beforehand with the group. And it allows people to ask questions, bring perspectives. But more importantly, it it helps things become more refined and making sure that we're communicating as best as possible. And I got to tell you, personally, I've loved it. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on Sermon Read-Through because both of you have preached and have used it.
2: I appreciated it, one, because it was my first time giving a message yeah. in adult church, as I like to call it. In tall people church? In tall people church. I preach, but just they're a lot shorter. Um, and so I really appreciated the other perspectives. I haven't gone through seminary, so I just know what I know from spending time with Jesus and doing my own research. Um, so it was really great to have a jury of my peers.
1: A jury it's of kidding.
2: your peers? Or also, but like other highly educated um, people that I respect and work with and love and appreciate that gave their perspectives mm-hmm. and made my message better than it ever could have been by myself. Yeah.
1: How about you, Derek? How's, I mean, you've done several. And, and so this was something we enacted this and I didn't, I didn't make it up. Actually, one of my uh, former pastors instituted this. And I remember the first time I went through it, I'm like, I don't need to read it in front of people, just the <laughs> Holy Spirit. And now I actually, I love it. I'd love to hear your thoughts.
3: Yeah, it's good to have a group of people tell me how right I am. No, <laughs> no that's not true at all. Uh, no, I think it's great. I think it's a it's a good way to hold yourself accountable. Like that you don't, because it's so easy in writing to, I don't want to say cut corners, but like we're to make it very simple or make it uh, what you think versus what did you actually research? Yeah. What did you actually look up? Uh, because it's so easy to just put your own... Uh, like behavior your own uh what you grew up with, your own experiences, your own ways of reading the scripture into it. It's good to have other people look at it and say, Ooh, I don't know about this. Or, hey, maybe you should look this up, or, you know, have other ideas that maybe you didn't even think of. And I know in seminary we had to do that where yeah. anytime we wrote a sermon, we couldn't just give it. We had to actually have it uh looked at by somebody. So it's a review. it's a pretty general practice. And I think it's good. That we are doing that here and i i like the level in which
1: we take it to it's good yeah i think one of the things that's also great is like casey you don't have a biblical education
3: no
1: um and and here's the part is that often people don't realize is that scripture was not meant to be read in isolation in fact uh, most of our actually almost all of our theology was developed in communities and so even in biblical interpretation and i think one of the traps that people can fall into is the only people that can have an opinion or a thought about Scripture are people who have degrees. Amen. And that's just not the case. I mean, you look at the disciples, none of them had degrees. <laughs> they, were, they were fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. And, uh, and here, uh, part of our modern culture, we have two extremes. We have one extreme that says education is necessary at all. And then you have the other extreme which says only somebody with a master's or a biblical education has the right to do things. And I actually think there's beauty in in understanding that people can bring perspectives on how they read something. Even one of the things that's been helpful is having women present as part of it. Because as a man, there are certain things that I read, I read through the lens of a man. Even uh, like
2: your theology research and books that you find. Oh, it's almost, you've almost been, all dead white yeah, guys. you've been finding it's hard <laughs> to find a well-published female theologian.
1: Yeah, there are some, and don't get me wrong, and that's becoming more prevalent. Um, but within mainstream Protestantism, within evangelical, it's it's a rather new thing. Or... If there are women, there are usually people like Beth Moore that are, are specifically writing to women. So that's one of the things that I've been really excited to see is there are more women and even different ethnicities uh, experiences coming in to help us as we read Scripture.
3: One of the things I like about it is when you have people of different uh, levels of theology, it's not it's not smartness. It's just levels of experience of of experience is that. So let's say I I'm looking at something from a theological standpoint and I dive way too deep into it. Okay. and I start talking about it you know, the the general person in, in a congregation may not ever think about it to or that care. level. And it could be harmful yeah. if I start talking about it to that deep of level. So having that conversation helps pull you, everyone to like the same level and start thinking about what does it mean for everybody. Yeah. Uh, and so I find that to be very helpful because there was a couple times when I first got into seminary where I would go look at my youth sermons and I'd be like, that's a bit too much. Like, <laughs> like for a high schooler or a middle schooler, like I should tone that back a little bit. But it's, it's with, with Scripture, you can dive as deep as you want to. Like you yeah. can go down the rabbit hole in a good way, but also you got to make sure you have people there to bring you back down to a more reasonable uh, processing, I guess.
1: Well, in Casey, I'd be curious for someone who's who's been part of it and you don't preach. No. Um, what's it like for you sitting in on that and getting to have your voice heard? And and a big part of it is is sometimes whoever is preaching, you'll have a story or, or an illustration or a theological point that you think everybody gets. Mm-hmm. And that's actually probably one of my favorite. Is I'll, I'll have a story and illustration, and that whoever's there's like, uh, yeah, that didn't <laughs> land. <laughs> and I'd rather do it there than on a Sunday morning where people are entertaining me and going, yeah, that was great, Jason. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so what's it, what's it been like for you? I mean, and in fact, you're, you were raised Catholic, Was. but only recently, if I'm understanding, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but have really dedicated your life to Christ in the last couple of years. Is that fair? Yeah.
0: yeah. So
1: what's it like for you being a part of that?
0: Um, I think it's really interesting for me um, to kind of take the step back. And there are things, I mean, even today there was a, a We're talking section. about
1: baptism today. Yeah, we're
0: talking about baptism today. And we were reading over it and I was looking at the sermon. And I'm like, this is drastically different than what I was taught yeah. or told growing up. Um, and so I think it's really interesting for me to be able to see a different perspective because especially being raised in, um, my church is very Old Testament heavy, like very Old Testament heavy. That was so was Catholic. I know that. Yeah, I was, Catholic, that's Catholic. Yeah. Catholicism. So I knew it. I know my Old Testament. That's my bread and butter. Um, but sometimes we get into the Gospels. And I mean, we even had it today with the, the thief on the cross. Yeah. And I was like, the what? On the who now? <laughs> like, no idea what it was. Um, and there's certain instances where we'll be talking about like books in the Bible. I'm like, my favorite's Tobit.
1: Which, by the way, is not a book in, in our Protestant Bible. That mm-hmm. is part of the Apocrypha uh, or called the Intertestamental books yes. uh, that Catholicism uses. Mm-hmm. And, and there are some Christian denominations, Protestant denominations, that will still include them, but they'll just read them from a historical mm-hmm. at a scriptural there's standpoint.
0: There's seven books that okay. are in.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a whole different conversation. We don't need to get into that. Yeah, that's a whole um, different conversation.
0: Yeah. But I really enjoyed it from a personal standpoint of being able to see everybody's different perspectives. Cause there are times where like you'll have a story and you'll be like, I really want to put this in there. And Kate's like, I don't really think that that lands. And you're like, I'm putting it in there. No, I've no, never that done happen. that. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting to see like what somebody else is really like passionate about of Like this yeah. needs to be in here. Right. And what somebody else is like, I don't think that needs to be in there. Like, I think it's interesting to see the different perspectives from like an outside viewpoint.
1: Yeah, I say, I really appreciate Cause we do have a well-rounded group that are in in there. And even theologically, like I wasn't raised Lutheran. You were, Derek, you were raised Missouri Synod, Yep, which is definitely not LCMC. That's the denomination we're part of. And and so I got, I was raised Baptist. I've worked in reformed churches. I've worked in non-denominational churches and I lean Lutheran. Like I agree with a lot of Lutheran theology. And in some runs you have people that are like dyed in the wool. I am Lutheran and that's all they care about. But I think some people come with different perspectives and yeah. realizing those are theological things, not doctrinal things. Like the main things we all agree on, the Trinity, uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, salvation through Christ alone, Scripture as authoritative, all those fun ones. And it, it actually, it's actually very helpful. Um, so with that being said, let's get into the message today where we kind of talked about. Um, so when we look at the kingdom, the way that I approach this— on Sunday, and, and we're going to dive deep a little bit deeper into this than we could have in the sermon just for the sake of time, is baptism is actually kingdom language. Uh, there's this story in John chapter 3, and most people are familiar with John three sixteen because we have all the verses. It's the four gods who love the world verse, but there's a story leading up to it, and in it, and I'm turning the pages of my Bible, so you all might be hearing, hearing that on the podcast, um, but here's kind of how the story goes, and we talked about this on Sunday, is uh, Jesus is a really well-known rabbi, a teacher, and this Pharisee, a religious leader, um, knows Jesus, has been listening to Jesus, and so he comes to Jesus at night. And different scholars have a different views. Some believe that the reason why he came at night is he didn't want anybody to see him. Uh, but there's also a possibility and I actually probably agree with this is that a lot of times you would have these kind of questions after dark. They didn't have television. So usually when nighttime existed or when nighttime happened, this would be the time where you could have these kind of personal one-to-one conversations or you would wrestle with some of these things. So Nicodemus comes in the middle of the night, whether it's because he's hiding or it's just tradition, whatever it might be. And he goes up to Jesus. And and the way I told it on Sunday was, you know, let's call Nicodemus Nick. (laughs) And uh, Nick goes to Jesus, Hey, Rabbi, you're obviously a teacher from God because no one could do all the things that you do. And teach the way you teach if you weren't from God. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're right. And he's like, here's the thing. Uh, only The only ones who can see the kingdom of God are those who are born again. And Nick's response is really interesting. It's like, like I'm supposed to climb up back into my mother's womb? Like, how is that possible? And let's just be honest. That's a, a weird and horrifying picture. Uh, an adult <laughs> male climbing. And then being born again, like yeah. a second birth. And Jesus then goes on to say very truly I tell you no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. And flesh gives birth to flesh but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases you hear its sound but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Now there's more to the the story than that but we kind of left off there. And one of the things that again this is the thing about scripture. I don't. I'm not with John. I don't know what John's intentions are, and one of the challenges we have is to wrestle with what did John mean, and the way we figure that out is partly culture, understanding the world around him, but then also what his church history told us, and then even just language. And so, when when Jesus says you need to be born of water, I was taught for the longest time, and it was funny. I think Jennifer Colby, who was in read through today, was like, "I'd never heard this before," but this is what I was taught, is that he was referring to. Water, uh, uh, someone actually being naturally born, because he then goes on to flesh gives birth to flesh, and that the water was a reference to amniotic fluid, which, Mm -hmm. when a woman is about ready to go into labor, her water breaks. But more than likely, that's not what Jesus is talking about, and the reason is, is historically, water was never really talked about when it came to birth. You don't, we don't find any references where water is used to connect to birth. So Jesus is most likely talking about John the Baptist. And what his baptism was, which if you're familiar with the Gospels, before Jesus began his ministry, John the Baptist is in the River Jordan, and he's preaching a baptism of repentance. And Kate, you had this question, what is the difference between John the Baptist's baptism and the baptism that takes place for us as believers?
2: Yeah.
1: And so say more, you were the one who asked that. I'd love to hear what your thought was behind that.
2: So it's like somebody had asked before, we had had this conversation with Derek and our early childhood coordinator, Hope, who oversees the- was awesome. Who is in, awesome. Who's awesome. So shout out to Hope. She's got the day off today with her family. Um, and she oversees the infant baptism classes and organizing that through families. And anyway, we were having this conversation of, well, what did the baptism that John the Baptist was performing before Jesus died on the cross, what did it do? yeah because jesus hadn't died on the cross yet, and how can we really be forgiven and washed clean like what is the repentance? why was he doing this? Why did Jesus need to do it? what did it do
1: yeah, and that's a great question um now, Derek, just coming fresh out of seminary, was this something that you guys talked about? I actually have some background, but i'd be curious if if you have any that was taught, and again, we don't talk about this beforehand, so I'm putting Derek on the spot, yeah. and a little bit of Masters Institute <laughs> <laughs>
3: on the spot.
1: So we do. Uh, so we we do have to talk about baptism.
3: It's one of the core classes that you have to take, and then one of the things we had to do is we have to do what's called they call like a working document where you have to like basically outline your views on on baptism, and then over the years you're supposed to refine it and continue to uh, shift it as you learn more and more. And the crazy thing about baptism, and so just to kind of, to start this off, is it's it's kind of a tricky subject because I feel like everyone was taught a little differently. Mm -hmm. And I think the wording in scripture is confusing sometimes. And I think everyone has, oh, well, this is what I was taught. This is what I have. This is what I know. And so it's a hard thing. And that's what that working document was for It was just like, they said, put it all out there. Just say everything that you believe and think and then go back and see what Scripture says. See if it backs it. And I know infant baptism is is one of the hardest because yeah. scripturally, it's not as backed as you'd want. Like yeah. for a, for a, from a theology standpoint, from a finding it through Scripture. There's no to, place in Scripture where it tells a, us to do it. Yes, yeah. you have to do a theme of Scripture. You have to see what Scripture is saying and then compare that with church history. And you have to combine that with, a lot of other stuff. Which I know everybody time.
1: listening is like, ooh, I want to read church history to learn about infant baptism. So many so many people are clamoring for that. <laughs> I'm
2: so glad you guys are ready. Yeah, and,
3: and actually that was...
2: I ain't got time for that.
3: And I don't want to just, I don't want to use because we're Lutheran, but uh <laughs> Martin Luther's walk through it from his early writings towards the end, it's, it's very interesting how he progresses because one of his first arguments or like in his early writings was basically... The church has done it for what fifteen hundred years. Well, yeah, this or however many that years, we know of. How however yeah. many years, and it's not up to me to disprove it. You need to prove that infant baptism isn't the right way of doing it. Yeah, and now I don't necessarily like that, like that argument because everything he did was pushing against what church tradition was yeah. uh, with the that ca- Catholic Church at the time. What it what it stood for, and so to me that was a that wasn't the best argument. Because then, I said so. Yeah. Basically <laughs> the church does it, so we should do it. Oh yeah. But except for I, those other things. I don't like all the other things that <laughs> the, the church, church at does. the time was doing. Yeah. And so I didn't like that. But then as he progresses, I think his his view progressed. And I I liked that because I feel the same way. Where it's like, what I taught was as a kid was great. Like you should be baptized. That was basically it. Like, do it. Like it's it's good. Like that God wants that. But then, as you dive more and more into it, like my view has changed and shifted as well. Yeah. And so I think that's I think that's that to see that in in Luther gave me permission to do it as well. Like it was like it's okay. And I know Luther. I'm not holding him any higher than anyone else. But it was just cool to see someone with such a theological mind struggle with it too, and we're still struggling with it. Even what 500 years later. And so uh, I find that interesting. I know I didn't answer your question. So yeah, I'll no. let you give your background and then <laughs> I'll, so I'll, I'll add into
1: it. But uh, this is why I love putting Derek on the spot. I'm mm-hmm. like, Master you just Derek got Packard, your degree. Everyone. I'm like eight years removed from seminary now at this point. So, uh, well, and here's the thing. So, uh, theologically, when we look at baptism, so the difference between John's and Jesus's, and infant baptism is part of it. Uh, Because baptism was never actually seen as a sign of the covenant. Circumcision was. Yeah. So for a Jew, the sign of the covenant, and only males could participate, Mm -hmm. was circumcision. And in the New Testament, baptism now became the sign of the covenant. And that shifted. And that was part of it being a new covenant. In the Old Covenant, it was circumcision. In the New Covenant, circumcision, it's circumcision of the heart. Well, how can you tell when a heart's been circumcised? Well, that's baptism. Um, there is a removing, there is, uh, there is technically blood is always part of a covenant, but here the blood that was shed was not yours or mine. It was Jesus's. Yeah. And so what was happening with John, um, there was actually, if you, how many of you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yes. Okay. So this is actually helpful to understand in second temple Judaism. That's a, a big term. I won't get too much into. You had this group, uh, the, the temple was destroyed in about 586 BC. Okay. And when the temple was destroyed, it meant that people could no longer come and worship God in the temple. And eventually, when the Persians uh, came and took over Babylon, you had uh, the Israelites who had been held in Babylonian captivity, and the king of Persia was like, listen, I don't care if you're Jewish, just pay taxes and be loyal. And he sends, we have Ezra who goes to rebuild the temple and who actually finds scripture and brings it back, and then Nehemiah builds the wall, that's that whole section, and now you see the rebuilding of the temple. Well. The Pharisees, and this is important to know, the Pharisees, we don't really know when they came about. We actually think they came about probably during the second temple period. And the Pharisees' whole passion was, the whole reason why they got kicked out of Israel was because they weren't obeying God's laws. Yeah. And so they set up these extra laws to make sure that we obeyed the laws (laughs) so that we didn't get kicked out of the land again and have the temple destroyed. Which now, if you know scripture very well, uh, you can imagine how freaked out when Jesus says, hey, uh, this temple is going to be destroyed. (laughs) And it was like, what? What now? Like again, that would have, that would have been seen as an act of treason or a threat. Yeah,
2: it's now, like but, a terrorist. It was
1: a terrorist threat.
2: Yeah.
1: Um. So there was this group called the Essenes, and the Essenes uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There was this community up in the mountains that was kind of far away, and they removed themselves, and they would do this thing called a mikvah. and it's a it's a Hebrew word. But here's what it was: males, and I don't really know if the women did. I think it was just the men. You were considered unclean through sin and your touching of the world. And mikvah means bath. But it's not talking about the kind of bath where you're cleaning germs. That's what when we think of bathing, we think about cleaning, get rid of germs. They didn't understand germs, they didn't have microscopes. For them, you were ritually cleaning all of the filth of the day on you, of the sin. So in the mikveh, they would go immerse themselves in the water and ritually cleanse themselves.
2: And we see that Throughout scripture where they use water ritualistic.
1: Ritualistic water, yep. Mm-hmm. And so you have John who comes in bringing a baptism of repentance, which is different than the Essene community because the Essenes, you had to be a part of the community to be in it. And they would do this on a daily basis. They actually discovered at Qumran. Um, I think it's in the mountains of Qumran. Uh, they actually found a mikvah. And it's this, I mean, it's deep. It's like a pool and your whole body immerses. They go in without clothes and that's how they became richly cleaned. Well, in the baptism, which the word baptismos actually just means to be dipped, to be bathed or submerged.
2: Yeah. Immerse, um, isn't it? It's
1: just immersed. And that's, yeah. and actually it was usually referred to clothing. Yeah. So when you would dye clothing, you were baptizing the cloth, right? Now check this out. This is where it gets fun. So John is coming and he's saying, listen, um, you need to repent of your sins. John is a prophet, and he's a prophet of the Lord calling Israel back. And this is also important because the role of the prophet, people think prophecy is about foretelling the future. No, that was the, that was the sign of telling that somebody was a prophet, is they would give warnings from the Lord, and sometimes they were immediate. Like, if you don't do this, you're going to be thrown into captivity. Jeremiah. Jeremiah is coming to warning them if they don't repent that the temple is going to be destroyed. Um. John comes as a prophet, but the primary role of the prophet is to call people back to the Lord or to faithfulness. And so he's coming into Israel, who is now under Roman occupation, and he's saying, listen, you need to repent of your sins, be baptized. And the baptism was a ritual cleansing demonstrating that you were forgiven for your sins. However, you were not saved by that baptism.
2: Because baptism
1: doesn't save. It only cleans. And so even John recognized this, and he's like, he's called the forerunner. And John's response is, listen, there's one who's greater than me. And it actually was his cousin, who he's like, I'm not even fit to tie this dude's sandals. And here comes Jesus into the River Jordan. And you can imagine John going, uh, what are you doing here? Are you going to baptize me? I mean, that's who should be doing this. You're, you're Jesus. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, no, no, you need to baptize me. And Jesus is baptized, and this is where that famous picture comes in, where we've, you've probably all heard it, where all of a sudden as Jesus is being dipped into the water, as submerged in the water, when he comes out and you hear the Father say, this is my Son whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. It's not an actual dove. Everybody's like pictures of doves. No, it was like a dove, meaning it was peace. It was power. Uh, there was a presence. Now, interestingly, this also is the first encounter we see in the New Testament of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thus proving that Jesus is God, but he's separate from the Father and he's separate from the Spirit. So John is preaching a baptism of repentance. It is cleansing of your sin, but it is not salvific. It, does, it doesn't save you. It only is acknowledging your repentance. And even, even in this idea, um, when you are submerged, the idea is, is that everything that you were stays in the water. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what we do now. Well, then,
2: And that's the reason why we choose to do submersion, right?
1: That's Yeah, and, and here's the thing. Some people get hung up on the mode within Lutheranism. And Derek, if you want to say a little bit about this, we're not as hung up on how we do baptism. Yeah. Um, it's that, the water. Now, I'd love to hear, we, I, I mentioned sacrament on Sunday. Tell us a little bit, talk, share a little bit about what sacrament is. Because as Lutherans, we only have two sacraments. Catholics, which again, you were raised Catholic. Are there was, seven? Yeah, seven. Seven sacraments? And see, I'm not raised Catholic, so every time I ask him, we got Casey, our local Catholic here, a local cradle Catholic. <laughs> she though, uh, and ultimately, and I want to say this: if you're Catholic, if you love Jesus, you're ultimately a Christian.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's what we care most about. It's not about being Lutheran or Baptist. It's about being a follower of Jesus. Um, this is like the difference between Ben and Jerry's and Briars, right? <laughs> Some people ben prefer and Ben and Jerry's. That's Lutheran. Some people prefer Briar's.
2: I prefer Briars. Yeah. and Jerry's. Vanilla bean. And
1: I don't know what Target's brand would be, like what denomination is that it would like count top as.
2: Top Pantry or something? Some like Top that? Pantry. Market I Pantry. <laughs> i do whichever
1: one isn't eight bucks. <laughs> so. so you definitely need to be Lutheran then. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so share a little bit about sacrament because that actually is going to pull into why we baptize.
3: Yeah.
1: And what happens in baptism that's different in Christ in the new covenant.
3: So to make it, I'm, I'm gonna simplify it. So if this seems too simple, uh, yes, better to can, be simple. It can be very complex, or we can do simple. So I'm gonna to try to keep it very simple. Is that there's three parts that make up a sacrament, and this is this is kind of what differs us from uh, the Catholic Church, but and the from, Baptist and the Baptist. But the first one is is that there needs to be an element. Okay, so a physical element. So in this case is water. Uh, with communion, it's the the bread and the wine. Whatever it is. So, a physical element. The second is there needs to be a command from God that it is you are commanded to do it. And I think that's one of the big differences of like, is there really a command to do confirmation? And I'm in charge of confirmation and I love confirmation, but that's the question is, is there a command in scripture or to even do it? marriage or marriage or like that type of thing? And that's, I think that's where some of the difference is, is like, is it truly commanded by yeah. God? And then the third thing is there a promise attached to that event. And that That, promise is
1: a covenantal promise. uh, Yes. It's a covenantal promise from the Lord. And so
3: that's, that's the three things that make it up for, for baptism is, is, is that very thing. And so with the promise would be that washing away of the sin, like, you know, and I, I think why, you know, I don't, I don't care so much either about whether it's submersion, whether it's, uh, sprinkling or, you know, cupping a hand and dropping it on a child's head, which we, we tend to do, uh, but what I, I will say is if you think about submersion, which is basically just dipping someone in, fully going underwater and pulling them back up, it is a good representation of what that looks like, of, of your, your unclean, uh, dirty, sinful self going into the water and then the water washing that sin away as you're being pulled up. I think it's a good visual. It's a good way of, of seeing it. If you're like, how does baptism work? Like, I think that's a good way of looking at it. And then I'm sure we're going to get there, but I just need to make sure I say it as, yes, we believe in one baptism. Like I believe it's it's a it's a relationship between you and God, and that is a that that doesn't change. God's side of it never changes. However, I do believe that it's a daily walk. That yeah. it's a daily washing away of that sin. It's a daily of living out that baptism, or or the flip side, choosing not to, Right, choosing yeah. to walk That's away. On your part yeah choosing to not live under that that agreement that covenant that promise that uh whatever however it is you want to word it yeah and so and i know luther does talk about that a lot is that that daily walk that daily submersion that daily washing away yeah and i think that's a that's an awesome way to look at it and so i know there's a big debate of whether or not you should uh reaffirm your baptism or do it do it again and i'm a proponent of it not so much that you need it because i do believe you only need your one baptism however with everything in life re recommitting yourself to uh to god is good just like what the prophet's doing i think it's it's you're doing it yourself where it's like no i want to make this decision to 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 refocus my life towards towards jesus now do you need to be submerged to do that in front of people and as a baptism? No. But if that helps you, I think that's, a, that's an awesome way of
1: feeling it yeah. and not just yeah.
3: saying, I'm baptized.
1: And there's a work of the Holy Spirit that takes place in baptism, and that's also part of what makes it a sacrament, is that just like in communion, um, there's a, a theology or a, a viewpoint called Zwinglianism. So those, he was a, uh, Zwingli was a Christian theologian who proposed that all of the sacraments that we do, the two, which are communion and baptism for us as Protestants, are merely symbolic. yeah. And there's no spiritual element to them How, apart from the obedience. We do them because Jesus called us to. And to give you an idea, I remember um, <laughs> kind of embarrassed by this, but there was a point where I was just like, you know, we can do, we can do, we could do communion with uh, pizza and soda because it doesn't matter what the elements are. And we never, I never actually did it. But I remember going, that would be so cool. This was before I worked through my own theology. Actually, ironically, because I wasn't raised Lutheran, I used to think infant baptism was like sinful. Like if you were doing it, you were practically in a cult. (laughs) That's that's literally because that's what I was taught. Yeah. Not by my pastors, but by other Christian friends is only churches like that's a weird thing. It's not biblical. And and it was almost like a less than if you infant baptize, you're less than. But also that communion was just this symbolic thing. Mm. And we actually be part of what makes it a sacrament is that there is something the Holy Spirit does um, within the act of any type of sacrament. Um so in communion we believe that the holy spirit does nourish our soul that that the body and blood of christ we're not catholic in the mm-hmm. sense that we believe in a literal, a literal body and blood but rather that the presence of christ that yeah. christ is around it all, there's all kinds of fun lutheran sayings around that that i always forget the order but the idea is that no the presence of christ is there it, it's just it's not literally when i eat it it doesn't magically turn into or miraculously turn into the blood and the body. Once
0: it's blessed by a priest. Yeah. yeah. So that was something that always threw me off when I got here. It was like a year and a half before I realized that we did not view it as literal. Yeah. And I was like, and,
1: what? And that's And I think that's, but even in baptism, um, we baptize when we baptize people. Yes, the Bible does say, believe and be baptized and you will be saved. But that doesn't mean baptism saves. Right. Um, the other ideas, and, and Derek alluded to this, is that the sacrament is that it's both the water and the word together that makes baptism sacred. It's what the word does because of God's promise through the word that that's what makes the water purifying. Otherwise, if you don't have faith in Jesus and if the word of God is not there, you're just taking a bath.
3: Yeah. That's all you're, and that's that's the best. I, to be honest, that's the best way I view it when I yeah. when I want when I want to like, try to process it through myself. It's not the act of baptism; it's the faith in the person who you're doing it for, like the command. And three, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what's saving. Not the, the physical act isn't what's doing it; it's yeah. the faith in yeah. Jesus that does it.
2: It doesn't have to do with the pastor that's dunking you. It's no, not fact, the type of a water. Pastor. You don't even have to be a pastor. It's your relationship and what you understand. It's your faith.
1: And, and and also the faith of the person baptizing you. And and so and let me say more about that because we can okay. be we can be funky about it. There was a whole movement in the. Ancient church, where there was this group of people who ultimately fell away from the gospel, and people are like, "Well, is their baptism valid?" Well, yes, because at the moment they did believe it.
2: Oh, I see. But here's what I
1: mean by this: is a non-Christian could not go up and say, "I baptize you in the name of Jesus, Father, Son, because they don't speak
2: with that authority.
1: They don't speak with that not not just that authority, but they don't actually mean it. Like at that point, I would almost say it's mocking. It'd be like having a non-Christian lead communion; Mm -hmm. they're not actually believing it. Now." Ultimately you're right. It is the faith of the person being baptized and partaking that matters. And and so this is part of the reason and Derek and I have had quite a not a lot of conversations, but the priesthood of all believers is a big piece. There are some churches and even within Lutheranism that will say the only ones who can perform baptism or communion are ordained. Yeah. So you either have to be ordained as an elder or as a pastor in the church. And I don't I don't believe that and I don't think Martin Luther did.
0: Nope. Yeah,
1: Uh, And so one of the things that I love that we do at Zion is if you have somebody in your relationship that your relationship with that you've been walking beside in Christ and they want to get baptized and they want you to do it. That's awesome. Yeah. That's how it should be. Yeah, Case.
2: I have a question.
0: So if if somebody who is not a Christian baptizes somebody who is a Christian.
1: First of all, the question is why would a non-Christian baptize?
0: What if it's like, I mean, I guess my question is more so like if they're pretending to be.
1: And, and so here's the thing. The person being baptized, I would say it's a legitimate baptism.
0: Okay.
1: And, and so that's why I wanted to be careful with what, I'm, what I've said earlier is it's not that the, the baptism is invalid. Mm-hmm. But I think it is a worthy question to ask, wait, the person being baptized, are they actually being baptized in the name of Jesus? Because there are cults that say they're a Christian, that believe in Jesus. But when, you talk, when they talk about their Jesus and we talk about our Jesus, we're not talking about the same Jesus.
2: Yeah. Can you baptize yourself? I would say no. Like what if there was the last person on earth? Well then it's Derek. <laughs> and he needs to reaffirm his baptism. No, he's been baptized. One, on one is good enough, but like yeah, one is good you know enough. what I mean? Can you baptize yourself?
1: I think if I think there would probably be a d- dispensation of grace in that moment And right? God would be like, There's no one to do it for you, but I I don't think I've ever seen there's no picture in scripture and I don't know of anything in history of individuals baptizing themselves. And part of it there is a community that takes place in baptism. Yeah. Yeah. Thoughts, Derek?
3: I would say not. Don't do it. But I don't, I, I don't have like a I don't I have like a, a scripture tonight. where I'm like, don't do it. But I would say with that, I would err on tradition of like I would agree. Maybe you shouldn't, but I don't know if there's necessary where it says don't. But I will say I am very like, and it, it, to me, it even goes beyond just the priesthood of all believers of like I don't believe that there is that the the, the pastor plays that big of a role in it i think it is a it truly is the person being baptized and their relationship with god that covenant that i think it's it's between those two i think the pastor is there just to make sure that it or the person doing it is just just to make sure it's done properly or that it's it's given the right reverence maybe but i don't think it's necessarily about that pastor at all
1: or person yeah it doesn't have to be a pastor to do it Mm -hmm. correct Sorry. Yes. And, and so I, I actually I think I'd amend the way I described that earlier, because I, I, I do think you could have somebody who let's say somebody who's wrestling with faith.
2: Yeah.
1: And in a moment they baptize their friend and in that moment they're wrestling. Is the person's baptism still valid? hundred percent. Yeah. But what I would say is the person who is doing the baptizing, I believe there, there's going to be a different level of judgment that God will give on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, doesn't mean they're going to hell. Because we still get judged. I mean, this is getting into all kinds of fun theological. Oh, this is right really here. good. I love
0: Welcome it. Welcome to the breakthrough breakdown.
1: Welcome to the breakthrough. Because and and but the bigger point is, and, and Derek, you're 100 percent right according to what we see in Scripture. Um, at least everything I've seen and what I know of church history, baptism is about the faith of the person. Now, this I think they were called the Donatists. I think that was the the movement that there was all kinds of struggles with. They were baptizing and then they all abandoned faith. Mm. And then the question was, was their baptisms that they did for people valid because they left the faith? And ultimately, the council said, yes, because it's the faith of the person, not the person baptizing, that makes it effectual. Um, so I think I would, I would, I, I still mean what I said, but I think I want to clarify because yeah. it makes it sound like, with well, the pastor better or the person baptizing better be in right standing. Like their
2: faith l-
3: matters. Yeah,
1: and it still does, but it, not in the sense of how baptism affects you. Can I flip
3: it and ask you a question then based on what you just said? Yeah, this okay. is good.
1: Uh, and just because, like, I have my
3: thoughts on it and I'll share it after you share yours. But uh, I'm going to flip the question on you because if you're saying it's the faith of the person, okay, being baptized, then can, how can an infant have faith? And, uh, yep. So that's my question. Yep. No, I have my thoughts, so, and, I, and I, 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 there is an answer. I, I 100% believe that, but So I'm just I. curious what, what your thoughts are on
1: that. Yeah, so in this case, and this is where I think what we do is we look at Scripture and the heart of Scripture, and the problem is there is no biblical argument for infant baptism, meaning there's nowhere in the Bible where it commands us to baptize infants. Uh, the closest Scriptures we have are their assumptions. For instance, uh, when Cornelius gets baptized and says, he and his whole household. And for many people who want to say infant baptism is biblical will say, well, clearly this whole household included infants. I know lots of households who don't have babies. We're assuming that that's what it meant. Um, but what I would say is in this case, this is a different type of baptism because the baptism that a believer does as an adult, they are, it is based on their faith in Jesus. Infant baptism is more of a covenantal promise in which the illustration that I like to use, and we actually use this on Sunday, is God makes a covenantal promise to his people. And in Acts, at the end of Acts chapter 2, I believe it is, he actually says, and these promises are for you and your family and, and generations, what, what, whatever the language is there. And the idea that I like to use is this, and by the way, I didn't create this. I actually got this from one of my professors at school. Uh, when I didn't believe in infant baptism, he was the one who helped me understand this. If we had a cup, or an umbrella in this case, um, God makes promises under the covenant to the family. It's their belief. And that child is baptized into that family's faith. But here's the thing. They're under the covenant. They're not in the covenant yet. And so they receive all of the rights, all of the privileges, everything that comes with baptism, and including the work of faith. And so when we baptize a child, um, know that child doesn't have faith. And I would say this is an area where, for me, I was in a Reformed church for many years, and I actually like their language a little better, but I think they still come to the same logical conclusion, is that it is God who does the work of saving, of salvation. And that child is absolutely covered by the covenant, all the blessings, all the promises. But at some point, that child has to make the declaration or affirm their faith and demonstrate their faith as their own, and that's when they move into the baptism as a belief. And that's when they move from under the covenant to into the covenant, which is also why. And I, I, I think this is where things get sticky for some people. Speaking of sticky, it's so humid today. It's ridiculously humid. It is real
0: hot. It's
1: really hot. <laughs> it's not just out hot here. It's hot all over. It's yeah. it's hot. Um, the problem becomes is I'll meet I'll meet people who are like, well, I was baptized as a baby. Well, that's that's great. I took baths too. Like, if you don't actually <laughs> believe in Jesus. Your baptism does not mean you're saved. If there's no faith in Jesus, it's so I think it's a different covenantal promise. And when you're baptizing a believer or an adult, when they're baptized, they are making a declaration of faith. When an infant is baptized, they are under the promise of what they the promises that God made to them. But then here's the big part, and this is why people who are raised in the church, in my opinion, often don't have big life change stories. They always knew about Jesus growing up. There was never a question of faith. For them, it was just a natural thing as they got older. They moved into the covenant because their faith became real. Or their own. Or their own. And they may not be able to articulate it. My wife described it this way. She's like, I grew up knowing about Jesus my entire life. There was never a time I didn't know that Jesus wasn't God. Whereas for me, I remember July 22nd, 9.32 p.m. 1989, when I was like, wow, this Jesus thing is real. (laughs) Like, I didn't know Jesus. Yeah. So I would say that there are different types of—they're still the same promise, but it's the faith of the parents that God is honoring, not the faith of the child. And I would also—and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Derek— if a child—one of the reasons why in Catholicism they baptize babies is the fear if the child dies, that it will go to limbo. Actually, there's a— Purgatory. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, it's a, if I remember reading in my Catholic theology, I did a little study for this before I did this message— that there's actually, it's different than purgatory because there's no sins for that child to repent and work through. It's yeah. a state of limbus that's neither purgatory nor heaven. It's this limbo state. And I'm like, well, I don't see that in the Bible.
0: And they get stuck there kind
1: of. Yeah, and I don't, and I didn't read far enough to figure out within Catholicism. I'd love to talk. We should ask that new, there's the new Catholic priest. He's like this young guy. He's like, he looks like he's like 23. Uh, over at okay,
2: St. Pat's yeah. yeah like this
1: new young guy I'd love to hear his thoughts on this sometime we should get him on the podcast that'd be awesome um, all right so Derek there's my convoluted really and it's I'm overwhelmed with heat at the moment and feeling sticky so share your thoughts and if you just agree with me say yes
3: no <laughs> I don't and I know this is my famous phrase I use with him. I don't disagree. <laughs> I use that a lot with Jason. It's when, really funny. When I, I definitely agree, but there's parts of it that uh, I might view a little differently. Or word differently. Yeah. And so uh, the problem I, I would get hung up on is the faith of the parents versus a faith of a child. And that would be my only, and I don't even know if it's a hang up because I definitely 100% believe, and we we teach it a lot. uh, We teach it a lot in uh, our baptism uh, classes that we do that we, the sponsors is important. The family is important that don't, don't just pick a sponsor that you just want. Oh, well, it's my, it's my brother. So I want him to be a sponsor. Don't do that. Like we, we, we push that because we do want the child to grow up in, in faith. Like a part of that is that that community that Jason was talking about earlier is about building up uh, and making sure that they walk in the faith. I think we say it like we put a Bible in their hand. We, yeah. you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Teaching them teach them the 10 the,
1: commandments, the Lord's mm-hmm.
3: prayer, that type of stuff. And we do that because we do feel like they have to, their faith has to be matured, just like any adult. Like you still have to continue to walk in your faith. Uh, and so... So in that area, I definitely agree. Uh, my only thing is, is whether or not a child can have faith or not. Like, can a baby have faith, even if you can't express it? That's what I don't know. I know you can walk out of your faith, but if you're if it if it truly is a covenant between you and a child, I think Luther uh, walks through this some. And I don't know. I don't know if I'm. I, I probably am not capturing it perfectly, but like. And I think it's more of a general, not necessarily a, a biblical. But I think it's it's the statement of like a covenant between you and God. How can there not be faith attached to it? Like, how could you say? How can you, as a pastor or as a person, go in there and say that kid definitely doesn't? And yeah. I know, and I'm not saying that that's I'm not saying that that's my stance. But uh, I I would say that's the only thing I'm still currently processing yeah. and working through is whether or not a child can have faith or not, and then what that looks like. And I do. Th- I use it as part of the ways I think about it is scripture a lot of times tells you what not to do. It can tell you what to do and it can tell you, and it cannot say anything, but only give you the impressions of what you want. And I know with communion, it definitely tells you that you need to know what you're doing before you do it. Baptism doesn't necessarily have that same attachment. Now, does that mean that you can just apply it the same that you apply communion and that you do need to know before you get baptized? I don't necessarily see that, but I could see where Scripture does. We've done that in other points in Scripture, and so that's what makes tr- Scripture tricky. Is like, you know, well, if God didn't want us to baptize infants, wouldn't Scripture say it like it did for communion? And now that's not necessarily
1: a fair argument. So, nope.
3: and you can back, you can push back because I'm not no. And I that.
1: wouldn't push back. And I think this is where the the question becomes: is we don't know. Yeah. And so yeah. anybody who takes a hard stance and says so we have to believe this, well, why do I have to believe it if the Bible doesn't clearly say? Reformed, which is, I, I find a lot of beauty in Reformed theology as well. Um, don't agree with all of it, but that's okay. Um, the way they talk about it is, is it's the covenant of promise, and it's that sign and seal of that takes place. And then there's baptismal regeneration, which we got to talk a lot about infant baptism today. Um, yeah, Case. Um,
0: so I think for me, like especially when I stopped going to Mass, part of the reason I stopped going was because I had such a huge issue with infant baptism. And my dad and I would go at it because my dad was raised Irish Catholic. My mom converted to Catholicism. So she was always the mediator. She was always one that was like, I don't know. I'm new at this too. Um, But I remember like, especially being in high school, I always had an issue with it. And my dad and I would go at it. The difference between having faith and being told you should have faith. Because it felt like, especially like growing up in the church. um, And again, like I didn't question it growing up. It was just what I was told. And then I got to a certain age where I started questioning things and it, it was this, like, guilt of of questioning things. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like that's—especially, like, you have people who weren't raised in the church, and then they have this huge life change. And I feel like oftentimes I see people who were raised in the church going through, like, two or three years where they're just in a limbo. They have no idea over, like, one thing. And my huge thing was infant baptism. Yeah. Because I was like, this is—it was weird to me for so long.
1: Well, and it's—I think one of the things that's helpful— Kate, you and I are in the same boat because we weren't raised in churches. Yep. I've, I've been a Christian— more I was baptized I at
2: 26 and I'm 30 years old today. Happy
1: That's, birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. Happy birthday. So, I want to, before we get to the end, and we could, all, we could probably do an entire different podcast on this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to talk lastly about why baptism is so important for us as adults. Yes. And what actually takes place. And in some ways, I feel like we got off the rails just to hang <laughs> a little bit, but it's okay. There are good questions. Um, we have individuals, and Derek mentioned it, there's, there is debate about whether or not someone should be baptized again. And the reason is, is it's like you wouldn't circumcise a child again. I mean, that'd be cruel to do that. (laughs) But that's one of the arguments is you wouldn't circumcise a child again, so why do you need to do it again? And I think there are a couple different ways of looking at it. Uh Remember I talked about Zwingli and who said it was all symbolic. Well, if it's just symbolic, you can do it as many times as an often as you want and it has no real value. Um, But I would almost... I would almost define it as this. If somebody was baptized as a child or as a teenager or as an adult, and that was their only baptism. If it was in, if it was in Christ and they have faith in Christ, that baptism is effectual and valid. However, um, there are some times in our lives when we walk away, we, we kind of say, God, I'm done with you. And in this way, it's, I almost feel like we reverse it. Now when somebody is baptized a second time or a third time, it's not a re-baptism. It's almost more of like John's baptism. It's a visual reminder of repentance, of telling yourself and the world and those around you, hey, I walked away and this is my way of, of it's starting over. It doesn't save you. You're already saved. And that's why it's not a rebaptism. That's why yeah. I think it's so important that we say that when people are like, well, I want to be baptized again. Well, why? And if it's because, well, I want to make sure I'm saved. No, you don't need to do it for that reason.
2: Yeah.
1: But if you have somebody who's like, listen, I... I really walked away from Jesus this last year, and I just feel like I need a fresh start. And listen to what happens in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase all the more? (laughs) By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now listen to this last part. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. That's why some would say you don't need to uh-huh. be baptized again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey so that you, ob- so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any parts of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves as God to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Paul says that we are united with Christ in baptism. It, it's no longer symbolic. There is actually a uniting. That's the other reason why we get baptized, not just for regeneration or for washing of sins, but that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. So your baptism, whether it was as an infant, as a child, as a teenager, as, uh, as an adult, if that was the one time you are baptized, you are united. But, and this is not, but is I guess not the right word, because that makes it sound like it's not valid. It's yeah. valid. I think for those who are saying, Jason, I, I, w- I have not been following. And I want to remind myself of God's faithfulness, that God is stuck by me. Even though I walked away, God never moved. He never budged. His faithfulness, his love, everything that he has done has always remained steadfast. I want to be baptized not to be reunited, but to remind myself of what's already taken place. And if that's the case, I'm all for it. But I think we want to make sure that when people do it, they want to do it, that they're not going like, my baptism as an infant didn't count because I didn't have a say in it. Well, no, that's, it's not about that. So, Kate, you you have. Yeah. Yeah,
2: so I think when I talk about like reaffirming baptism in one, it's a witness. The people that see you do it, it it's your testimony. It's a part of it Two, It's the public accountability. If I don't do something publicly, like we talked about as a good leader, you know, schedule your press release and then invent the thing. Like if (laughs) I don't do it publicly, am I really going to stick to it? But also I always think of this dead Adam, right? We say that where it's like you die to yourself. We're dead in Christ's death, Right. And then sometimes I feel like I want to unbury my dead zombie Adam and pick him back up and (laughs) carry carry him around around with me. And I want to leave him in the water. I want to publicly lay down that sin, that old self that I decided I wanted to carry around with me, like the baggage, like it wasn't enough for Christ to do it. So I need to take it back up.
1: I just pictured Monty Python, bring out your dad. Bring like out that's, your dad. <laughs>
2: yes. I'm, that's not dead exactly. <laughs> I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead yet. Yeah, exactly like that. So that's, I I am all for that reaffirmation of what your baptism meant to you and means to God Yeah. and doing it publicly and doing it so that others can see, but also that you can really see where you're at.
1: And that's why I say in a lot of ways, I think it almost goes backwards. It's almost like John's baptism. Almost. I'm not saying it actually is, but. I think it is a declaration. Yeah. There.
3: All right, so I'll go real quick, but I I actually agree with all of you. Uh I would well, just I would just zoom out and I would say if you're looking at it from the the church perspective that I don't feel like whether you're a baby, whether you're a teenager, whether you're an adult or whether you're being baptized at 100, the thing is is that the community, the church still needs to wrap, come around you. We all have yes. to grow. We all Reach have it. to develop. We all have to walk in our faith, and that can, there can be valleys, there can be mountains. There's times that I don't care how dedicated of a Christian you are, where you pull away from God. You see it throughout Scripture. The Israelites, that's all the story in the <laughs> Old Testament is, is that up and down. What? Are you place. mean they weren't faithful all the time? <laughs> no, it was just says up and down. And so that's, that would be my thing is, like, uh, is that just remember that that no matter how, how it happens, what it looks like, we all still need that daily walk. We still need to continue to think about it. And we need people around us, the church body, the people yeah. uh, to pour into us, to lead us on the right path. Uh, so we need Scripture. We need the Holy Spirit. Like all of this comes together, and it all works together, and it's it's complex, but it's wonderful, it's yeah. beautiful.
1: And there is a beauty to it. Now, one of the things that we did differently for this year's baptism in the lake, which I'd like to do from now on, if I have anything to say about it, <laughs> is we invited everybody to come out into the water with us because we're not alone in our baptism. Um, Paul actually makes that word that we are united with Christ in our baptism. Jew nor Greek, nor free nor slave, we are united. And I think sometimes we forget that baptism isn't an isolated thing. Yes, it's your faith, but you're part of a faith community. Yeah. And the responsibility we have to each other is like when Derek sins. I mean, he sins all the time, all the all the many ways that Derek sins. (laughs) Um, When when I'm not sinning and I still sin, don't get me wrong. But when Derek is really being boneheaded (laughs) and not acting in his baptism, I get to be the one to pull him back. I get to encourage him as a brother in Christ and and, and he does the same for me. I mean, I, I joke, I mean, yes, we all still sin, but um, that's the community part, is that when somebody is falling away, when somebody is choosing not to walk in their baptism, if you don't have a community, not only are you gonna fall away, but you might fall to your death. I mean, that's kind of what Paul says. There are those who fell away and they don't return. Yeah. And I often wonder how many of those is because they weren't part of a community, and not just a community as church, but a community of baptized those who are in this together. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. This was this was a fun conversation. This
2: is good. Yeah,
1: and I uh, and so hey, thank you so much. Um, again, I think we'll probably have more conversations about this because this is such a big topic. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much for tuning in to the Breakthrough Breakdown. If you found this helpful, maybe you don't even agree with it. Maybe like that was horrible. If, if there's a <laughs> if there's a rating system, give it one star. I don't care. Just rate it. Um, but don't if you that. if you found it helpful, <laughs> well, no, I don't want people to lie. But if you found this helpful. Do me a favor, share it with somebody you know. We so appreciate those of you who are listening. And I, I've been really encouraged. I've been hearing from many people that they're listening and enjoying it and hearing the different perspectives has been fun. Um, until next week, this is the Pastor Jason, breakthrough breakdown.
2: This is Kate Hopple and my shout out to Bob Goff, by the way. Oh yeah, we did do no, a no, Bob no, no, Goff shout-out! Sorry. Kate and I, I
1: normally, and I don't know why I keep on saying Pastor Jason, I normally don't say that. I normally say Jason, one of the pastors here at Zion. I don't know why I'm saying that. It's probably because I'm hot and sticky. <laughs>
3: I'm
1: Derek, <laughs> Pastor Derek, <laughs> <laughs> one of the pastors, one of the here pastors here at Zion. Zion. I'm just Casey. <laughs> <laughs> You're not just Casey. One of the
2: Casey's.
1: You're that one of the Casey's and, uh, and our producer over here who never talks and never says anything.
0: John Quigley,
1: <laughs> thank you so much for tuning in. Have an amazing week.
0: Thank you for listening to the Breakthrough Breakdown, a Zion podcast. Make sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Music and check out the Zion app. Share this episode with your friends so they can tune in as well. We'll be back next Wednesday with another installment of the Breakthrough Breakdown.